So I assume for this one, we will just go over your trip. My brain is so scattered. Like, I'd say cover, like, maybe, like, one country or one component. And That's then... what I was thinking, is you can break it up. Yeah, exactly. Times. We can spread it out. But, or uh, you could do it chronologically, like, the first week. Yeah, something like you wanna that. You want to cover, like, highlights of your first week or something? Yeah, we could do that. That's fine. And then, okay, so this is 53. I was on a, uh, a classic Bullet 500, which was the more recent iteration with fuel injection at Royal Enfield. And the second bike I was on was a, a, a 20, so I guess current models are 2014, right? So 2014 uh, Triumph Bonneville. And it was the Bonneville Basic. I was on a T100 briefly, but that bike didn't work out as well. And the the Bonneville Classic, that one... You would think it would have spoke wheels, but it, it has the, what is it, alloy? The crazy, like, vintage Honda rims kind of thing. That's what reminds me of, like, 80s Honda motorcycles. They're not spoke. They've got that uh, different rim. It has that different rim, and um, pretty much, like, it's just an aesthetic thing. T100 is the fancier version. That has spoke. And the T100 has a different uh, control panel, if you will. Pretty sure it's the same engine. I think there are just some uh, little things that they've added on to the T100 to make it slightly fancier as, as far as the aesthetic. There might be some, like, engine upgrades. In all honesty, I'm not sure off the top of my head, and hopefully that won't come back to bite me. But I wanted the basic Bonneville I, because you just, you know, I, I spent the first three weeks almost on a Enfield Bullet. You're never going to get out of second gear. <laughs> you might get into, like... You know, it, truth be told, there were a couple of moments that I got out of um, second gear when I was on the Bonneville. But on the trip that I was doing with the Enfield, I top, maybe top speed was like 80 kilometers per hour, not miles per hour. I'm sure there are some nuances that are different with the American version of the Enfield, because I can tell you, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Con- the GT Continental, the one that they just released, the Cafe, I think the... Trim, meaning like the suspension and the brakes and, and a couple other things, are different in the U.S. than they are in India. On the Continental GT, apparently, they wanted to really get the price point down. So there's only Brembo on one. They've removed uh, the fancy brakes from both. And uh, they also took the, I think Olean's suspension was originally on it, and they took the suspension off and put a crappier suspension on because they couldn't get the price point down to something that the Indian market could sustain. Yeah, because someone was asking me, how on earth do people pay $5,000 for this Continental in the States? And I said, well, I think the trim's different because I was staring at the one in the showroom, and I'm like, yeah, I, uh, I'm pretty sure that this is not how it's set up in the U.S. I'll have to ask Stephen with uh, the Cafe Racer podcast because he knows a lot more about that. So the bullet, uh, the bullet did great. So got to be like two or three, you know, maybe two or three thousand dollars. It's definitely less than than the American market. And for what it's worth, that bike's been around for like a hundred years, I think, in India. And it does things that bikes it probably wasn't ever designed for, but somehow manages to pull it off. So despite the fact that it is definitely not a bike I'm going to rush out and buy anytime soon. Um, you know, in India, it's inexpensive, which means that the parts are inexpensive, which means that they have to replace them more often. For example, after our, like, say, 3,000-kilometer trip, two or 3,000, um, 
he would need to replace the chain. I needed a chain adjustment in the middle of the trip. Um, probably new brakes and, uh, and a couple other, um, fixes. But also when you go to the dealership in India, it's like a hundred dollars to do a full service, replace brakes, chain, everything. It's, it's insane how cheap it is. Oil change, all that jazz. So you kind of, you get what you pay for. But at the same time, we're talking about a bike that's relatively low to the ground. Sadly, mine had a Springer seat and a separate passenger seat, and it wasn't like a bench seat. So the little tiny Springer seat, which was very strong, (laughs) the springs were very, I, I guess the springs weren't tight. They were very loose. So you're bouncing a lot. And... So wear a great sports bra, and <laughs> when you're in when you're in India, wear a very strong sports bra, because the world is one giant pothole, and all you're doing is transferring your um your in scientific terms kinetic energy, but you're you're losing your ability to like you know maintain your energy in like one spot when you're going around a corner and there are potholes that surprise you. I mean you're on a, a road that seems fine, and as you're going around a corner, you end up with a pothole or some sort of surface, but you end up coming off the seat as you're as you're going around the corner and you bounce. You're like coming off the seat, so you're like your weight is all over the place. So it 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 becomes really weird, and there is a, a couple of sections where. The roads were so bad, and even though I was going pretty slow, I'd go around a corner. I think this was when I was in Nepal. I'll I'll be a little more specific about like you know my timeline, but we're going around a mount, mountain, curvy mountain roads, corners, and there would be potholes and gravel and like all kinds of stuff. Mostly paved, but there are so many potholes you wouldn't know that. <laughs> so as I'm going around the corner, I'm thinking to myself, Good God, like. This is like flat tracking a Harley, but it's an infield, but it's flat tracking on a somewhat paved surface and you're going around and you're doing lefts and you're, um, you're flat tracking an infield because it's not a banked road. None of their roads in Nepal are banked. They're all perfectly flat. Like you could drop a, a ball bearing and it wouldn't go anywhere. So none of the curvy mountain roads are banked. So it's also a weird feeling when you're going around a corner. I mean, it's like constantly turning on a on a surface street, making a right or a left on a surface street, but going faster. So it felt really weird to me. And then I would lose the back end constantly when I'm going around these corners with the gravel and stuff. So I, I became very comfortable with the concept of the back ends like sliding out from beneath me. So it's kind of like amateur flat track time, except I, I suck at flat track and the one moment I tried to, you know, hey, everybody else does this. Let me just stick my leg out and see if I can, like, really get the most out of this experience. It didn't work so well for me cause, because the the um, the um bike is so low to the ground and my boots are so huge that when I put my leg out, I got it a little too far out and I caught the, caught the heel end of the boot. I was like, all right, I'm going to not kill myself in a, in a very uh, bad way here. Yeah, so all in all, like, the Enfield... It surprised me. I mean, cheap parts, you know, you got to constantly fix that stuff. But for a bike that's clearly uh, on the outset, not designed to do water crossings, gravel, um, off-road, and and with street tires, it totally tackled everything. I I did my first water crossing on that motorcycle. And, And 
And I wrote it, I wrote that thing like a champ. Like, I was fairly aggressive with it. And I can tell you that there are, like, at least 10 situations where I would have stopped and kind of really thought about what I was doing as to whether or not I actually wanted to do this if I was on my BMW. But on that bike, I just went, joop. So clearly, I'm hoping that, you know, once I get the tires, I'm hoping that all of this experience will translate to the BMW. But, um, yeah, the water crossing was a little interesting. So... So basically, the way that my trip was set up was that um, I went out there at the invitation of uh, of Tashi, who runs Built to Ride, and it's a motorcycle touring outfit in India, and he has only offered tours in India thus far, and he wanted to do a route scout through India, Nepal, and Bhutan, and I said, sure, that sounds awesome. So he provided the bike, uh, I, I bummed along, and we both kind of, you know, just experienced this stuff for the first time. And about a day and a half out of northern India. So I met up with him at his uh, in-laws and uh, stayed there for a, a, a night. And then I wanted to get going right away because I think I left the third, but I didn't actually land in my final destination until the fifth because of all the time changes and whatnot. So I was just wiped. But I really wanted to start in the sixth because I wanted to be somewhere cool for my birthday. So... We started the next morning. It was pouring. I did actually go during the monsoon season, so this should come as no surprise to me whatsoever. And we took off, and that was probably... Eh, traffic was not bad. It wasn't Delhi traffic, um, but it was a fairly good integration for what I was to expect when I did my trip on the Bonneville, which was an insane amount of potholes and you're basically having to retrain yourself. Everything you learn during any sort of rider course training in the U.S., throw it out the window. You're not going to be able to, you know, do the stuff that Walt talks about, or you're not going to be able to have, like, this great following distance where you can see, like, 100 feet of road ahead of you. It's going to be comfortably three feet in front of your tire is what you can ever expect to see. So that was a little bit crazy, and you end up guys on your six all the time and your blind spots. There are bikes everywhere, and every square inch of real estate on a road is utilized by a dog, a cow, a car, a bicycle, or another motorcycle, or a truck. So everyone's competing constantly. <laughs> so it becomes one of those things where you really have to learn quick reaction time. Because if you only have three feet in front of you and you've got a lot of potholes and really crazy surfaces and you're following a car, you're you're missing the view of everything that that car is occupying. I don't even like driving behind vans and SUVs because I prefer seeing what's in front of them, you know, either through a windshield or, or whatnot. So, so generally, I was not crazy about the idea of only having three feet in front of me. But you, you, you just learn how to adapt your riding style really quick. So but you're only going, you know, second gear, third gear tops. So you tend to adjust. And then, of course, in, in India, the, the way that, you know, the whole honking that everybody talks about. In India, there are two reasons why you honk. To let people know you're coming alongside of them. Because in a typical world, like in the U.S. or in California, you, you ride with the expectation that everyone stays in a lane. <laughs> And you certainly don't honk unless someone's drifting over and you're lane splitting. I mean, that's pretty much how we operate here. And there aren't a lot of potholes and dodging. So there, 
you honk to let people know that you're on their sticks and you're coming and you're going to pass them or something. Um, and then you also honk when you go around a blind corner. Because also keep in mind, it's British, former British colony. So you ride on the left instead of riding on the right. So the sides of the roads were reversed for me the entire trip. And so like every corner's blind and so you're honking for that reason. And as you leave that country, and I progressively went through Nepal and Bhutan, your honking levels change. <laughs> you get quieter as you leave. <laughs> so everything I learned within the first two days changed every time I you know, went into a different country. So we got out of India really fast, which was great, because my thought originally was that once you get out of a big city, just like is in standard with most international travel, like I'm sure you saw when you were in Dublin, that it gets quieter on the roads. Big city crazy, outside, maybe a little quieter. So that was my expectation. And uh, it was not the case. Everywhere in India, apparently cars are cheap. Because if there isn't a bus or a commercial vehicle hauling, you know, uh, some sort of trade or, or commerce of some kind, um, there's going to be a, a passenger car. So there are passenger vehicles everywhere. Once you get out of the city, still passenger vehicles, still traffic everywhere you were never alone which also meant that the stereo speakers that i brought for the inside of my helmet never got used because usually i wear them to kind of occupy the part of my brain that's constantly thinking about how dangerous my my life is and then i can focus on the road ahead of me but in this particular scenario my little second constantly working brain was focusing on everything that was going around me that i couldn't see <laughs> so it was literally like ah there was way too much going on for me to relax and listen to anything so once we got out of india i was kind of like oh my god and crossed the border into nepal suddenly the roads opened up and they were nice and you would see that the signs say this road and, and bridge brought to you by nepal and india so that was kind of cool because um, there's a lot fewer people. I mean, it's, it's more of an impoverished country. So there are a lot fewer people that are able to own vehicles in Nepal. So it's a bicycle rickshaw, tractor, bicycle, car, bus, motorcycle. And maybe in the, maybe in that order, bicycle first, bicycle rickshaw. So, You'd find people, like, towing stuff. Like, if they go to Home Depot or the grocery store, you know, theoretically, you'd see them take the bicycle rickshaw, and, like, they'd be riding the bike, and then the rickshaw part where people usually sit in would be, like, just filled with crap. <laughs> like, I-beams, <laughs> like, just fencing. <laughs> Everything you could possibly imagine. It was just a interesting experience. So once we crossed the border, it was nice because it got nice and quiet and the roads opened up and that was probably where I got my, my top speed of like maybe 80 or 90 kilometers per hour. And supposedly in that country, um, if you speed or are caught speeding and, and Tashi told me this, I don't really know. I haven't yet looked it up. Tashi told me that like, if you got a dirty cop, you could probably pay him off. But if you got a, a, you know, cop that wasn't dirty, then they could just take your bike forever. If you get caught speeding, I was like, wow, that's kind of harsh. So I generally tried not to really open it up, but there were just some areas where it was just a perfect straight between lots of really green trees and cool weather. And it just begged for me to just, because I mean, you're on U.S. roads and you look at 
you know, say a trip on the East Coast and you figure, okay, 1,800 miles. Well, I could do like 400 miles a day comfortably, you know. So you're expecting to have your trip be, you know, a lot shorter. And when you don't understand that you've got potholes and crappy road conditions and really low speed limits because of all of those, then your trip ends up growing like an extra three or four days that you weren't expecting. I could, it was really nice to be able to rip full throttle on some of those, uh, some of those straights just to, to remember what it's like to go faster than 30 miles per hour. Yeah, I think that would drive me crazy. Yeah, yeah. Slow as bleep was pretty much uh, how I was moving for some time. I mean, 150 kilometers in a day is really not what I call a day. No. It, it was my worst day in South America was, I think, 200 kilometers in a day. Eight hours. Yeah, no, that's really slow. It's not that much time. Yeah, so that that was a little maddening. But, you know, that's just me. Just landing in a situation and not really doing my homework. <laughs> So how long until you went to, how many weeks until you went to Nepal? Is that two weeks? Or uh, no, I was in Nepal in two days. Oh, so you only stayed in India for a couple of days? Uh, uh, for that part of the trip. Um, he already offered tours in India, and we started in northern India. So we were only about two days ride away from the border. So oh. when I arrived in Nepal, it was on my birthday. Um, no, wait, no, it wasn't. Was it? Yeah, no, it was on my birthday. So we spent my birthday doing this gnarly ride, um, crossing the border. It was very hot. Um, didn't happen to stop for water, and so I was a little bit dehydrated. And I think I posted on that where I just had this like just ridiculously terrible picture of myself, um, because I was just it was so scorching. Just blah. if it wasn't raining, it was just freaking hot. So you had like one of two extremes to pick from. And at the border, we were stopped for some time. So I'm thinking, wow, this is a great birthday experience. I have heat stroke and I'm like sitting at the border and we're delayed because the Indian is traveling with the white girl where everyone goes, ooh, money. (laughs) Mm. So there might have been some bribery going on. But um, Mm. once we crossed the border, it, it was a little bit better and we made it to Pokhara very late. And so we spent the next day in Pokhara just kind of wandering around. And so it was really nice to just, you know, at the end of the evening, drink a cold beer, kick your feet up and say, Woohoo, we're done riding for today. And tomorrow is a day off. So. Got it. All right. So it sounds like you spent more time in Nepal and Bhutan. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, Yeah, because Nepal was probably... I was probably there for seven days, two mm. days in India, seven days in Nepal, and okay. um, a couple days back in India after we exited Nepal, and then four days in Bhutan, and then a couple days back in, in India, in oh. northern India, before I flew to Delhi and then started the Triumph trip. Got it. Well, we will save that part Yes. for our next episode. Um, so the moral story is, if you're interested in getting a rolling field... For just regular American riding, go for it. Actually, I recommend that as a great beginner bike. It's also a great Absolutely. city bike. Low seat height. Yeah, or if you just want a city-friendly bike um, that's easy to maintain, it's a single cylinder. You know, it's not 
something that requires a lot of work to change the oil or a lot of time to maintain. It's a very maintenance-friendly bike, too. Like, anyone can work on that bike. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have fancy parts that, you know, Electronics. It's, have yeah, has, yeah, there's <laughs> no electronics. I mean, it's a very simple bike. And even if you don't live near a rural infield dealer, it's definitely a bike that I think any solid mechanic, um, anyone who's worked on just any kind of basic motorcycle engine can work for you. So it's a good bike to consider in your in your bike search. Um, speaking of bikes, why don't we um, quickly go over the um, the Scrambler that came out? Yes. And um, if you're a Ducati fan, you've probably already seen it. I, eh, as I said before, I'm just like, that's cool. Yeah. Cool there the was, bike. there was like, a lot of hype. They yeah. were clearly yeah. trying to attract the uh, slightly smaller price point, hipster kind of, you know, surfer California something variety with Proud their marketing. Something up ahead where they were showing skateboards and surfing and hey man yeah Ducati's coming out with a new one so you could tell they were chasing a different audience than the standard uh, standard yep. sport bike crowd yep no definitely I don't know I'm not I mean maybe it looks maybe it's a two dimensional one dimensional thing where in person it looks better I'm not jazzed by it I'm not jazzed by the look at all and you know, you guys probably caught a little bit of that at the beginning of the podcast. I'm When I think of Scrambler, I think of High Pipe. And I think the original Ducati didn't have mm. High Pipe either. I think that whole picture of what a Scrambler is with a High Pipe is something that probably started with Triumph. So this is a Ducati version. Exactly. But so it definitely looks different. Yeah, it's totally not what I was expecting. So I'm a little, meh, I don't know. I'd, I'd prefer a monster over this one. I think that the important parts oh, need yeah. to be skyward a little more. I would like to see a higher pipe on it personally. Or even if um, if I were shopping for something in that, I would probably go for a Triumph instead. I'd, yeah. You know, there's Scrambler. I like. I think that looks really cool. But, and um, I think it's the same price, too. Yeah, everything is seems to be pricing with each other. Because I um, think uh, Triumph, this is 803 cc's. I think the Triumph is standard like 898. Scrambler might be different, but I know that the Bonneville is somewhere close to 900 cc's. I think yeah, the price point's the thousand. same. Yeah. You know, and I just, I, I think I like the aesthetic of the Triumph a little bit better than this Ducati. Um, I do too. Entry level price isn't too bad for Ducati, $8,500. It's the cheapest of the lineup. And then as you go through the four different styles of Scrambler, mm-hmm. um, it creeps Kind of like the, the Honda, like the CB500 yeah. series. Yeah. yeah. So you, you get a different kind of version of it for different people. That's cool. Good for them. Yeah, risky, you know. I don't I don't know apart from aesthetic, you know, tank changes and seat, I don't know exactly what's different on each of the models. I'm hoping it's just tank and seat, because in all honesty, four different yeah. models of a totally new motorcycle, that's risky. Yeah. No, I think I'm thinking it's like just your body body aesthetics, yeah. screen, no screen, tail, no tail you know, customize kind of like the Harley model where you can put your own bar, you can change the whatever. It seems like they're just trying to offer choices because they're seeing how much people customize their bikes in this genre. Like, I think when you buy something in that kind of scrambler um, era bike, people, they, you know, they modify things to their liking and 
Ducati probably realized, you know, we could offer some choices. And actually, I'm guessing, too, that the Honda, the 500, um, that's probably doing well. And having different versions that, you know, to talk to different, that speaks to different people's preferences. It seems like a, seems like a good thing. So, good luck, Ducati. Yeah, and you know what? I just looked at some of the specs. Um, Yep. The uh, Ducati Scrambler, 31-inch seat height, so that's fairly high. But you would expect something like that for something that would be uh, thinking about going off-road. Yeah, and being an 800. Yeah, and uh, another interesting thing, it's actually, I think, much lighter than the the Triumph. It's 370 pounds dry. Oh, that's really light. Um, Triumph is, by comparison, uh, 865, their scrambler. Uh, slightly more expensive, starts at 9100. Mm. And let's see. It's still so expensive. Front yeah, 19 and 17s instead of 18 and 17s. I just I still can't wrap my my mind around buying a bike that it costs more than five thousand dollars. Just anything like spending ten thousand dollars on a bike to me it's just so absurd in general. So I yeah I'm, I'm biased in that sense because I'm just straight used bike person. Ooh. Like and it's another yeah. hundred pounds. It's four hundred seventy one oh, pounds. I knew the wow. Triumph was closer to five hundred. So. A little yeah. bit heavier, a little more expensive. I still like the aesthetic, gotta say. I don't know, obviously, yeah. how a, you know, a Ducati Sporty handles off-road, and we've seen it done many a time by seasoned riders, which is not what I would describe myself as. But I can tell you that uh, the Bonneville surprisingly has the same, a similar feel to the, um, to the Enfield yeah. in terms yeah. of not necessarily handling or you know suspension or anything like that per se but just like the the weight balancing because mm. for me it didn't feel any different handling that bike yep. off-road which yep. you know my brain it's really hard for me to wrap that you know a triumph is going off-road and gravel and, and water and whatnot but um yeah i mean it was really uh pretty pretty easy to handle in that regard it's low, so, it has a low center of gravity yes and, and yeah, I think yeah it's that very that, skinny and that is yeah. super key so yep. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens with the Ducati. We haven't even had press launches yet. They've only shown the actual motorcycle in a warehouse in Compton. Oh, I thought they. Oh no, they invited uh, publications, and and you'll we'll post links on our show notes uh, from Asphalt and Rubber. But they invited publications to come out and photograph it. And look no, at it. not write it. They didn't actually write it yet. So I'm thinking that it's one of those situations similar to Indian where there's like, you know, five models floating around that are all pre-pro yeah. and their press fleet will probably all be pre-production or they will wait until they have mm. assembly line bikes and then do the press launch. So that'll be interesting. Mm. And then you already heard me ramble a little bit about those, those Suzuki's. Which I'm yeah, the GW250F. Yes, and a GSX S seven fifty. Why can't they come up with new names that are not confusing? Um, yeah, it's a whole lot of like <laughs> you know numbers and uh, and letters. Yeah. Um, and speaking of buying a new bike, I just wanted to quickly mention this fun email that I got um, from I think her name was Kirsten, and she, you know, I mentioned a little bit earlier, basically. 
her son got a new bike. He got a sport bike. He got your kind of stereotypical ninja 600cc super sport bike and uh, totally new. So, you know, she had general concerns and um, about the safety and protection and whatnot. And um, she's not crazy about the idea, but she was okay with it as long as the son goes to training, goes, takes classes, learns more about the motorcycle, which is really smart. You know, it's good to know what you're riding and and understand, like, what it is that you're actually riding um, and how it works and how to take care of it. So she also wanted to know what gear choices would be good for him as a commuter with an hour commute, which to me, hour commute on a Ninja doesn't sound, at least on a ZX, doesn't sound fun. Um... Well, maybe he's a CrossFit instructor. Maybe he works out <laughs> it. I, you know, that if you're like a Pilates instructor, you probably could wing it because um, you have abs of steel. But so she just wanted to know, like, you know, textile or leather, and whether he should get a one or two piece. So I just, you know, gave him kind of my general uh, thoughts on one or two. I'm I'm biased toward a two piece because I need the flexibility of two piece gear because I have like three outfits and I like to mix and match. And I don't want to be stuck in a suit. So I like to go places and I don't like to wear, I don't want to wear a one piece suit everywhere I go. And um, I'm okay with wearing pants, you know, wearing motorcycle pants inside. So um, for me, I just, I told him my preference there, but um, also just textile versus leather and generally that you know textile it just affords you flexibility and affordability you can spend a lot less money and get something that works for you 12 months out of the year versus say five or six depending where you live you know like here in in philly leather it only works for you for like mm, four months it'll work for you in spring and then maybe early fall but in the summer it's just too hot it's really hot here and humid to wear leather and it's just not realistic and then in, in winter forget that because it's not warm enough so I just kind of gave her a few different things to think about um, you know if you're a parent and you're concerned about your child riding um, I totally understand why you're concerned um, but if you take the stance that Kirsten did which was you know, you know if you decide to do this can you please do it the right way can you please get training can you educate yourself can you um buy a proper bike for yourself can you gear up please and chances are your person will probably say sure you know as i i think anyone who gets any kind of support from their loved one to ride is always excited happy how can you not be happy when someone's supporting what you're doing and I think if you are the writer and you're trying to get support, you better be throwing these things at them in order to, like, really get them on your side. You know, don't go out there and buy a leader bike and then wear nothing and expect your person to be completely okay with it, you know. Be smart about it. Get dressed up. Go take a class. Take some maintenance classes. Figure out what exactly it is that you're going to be sitting on that could possibly kill you. Let's be honest about that, right? So I hope um, she finds her way being comfortable and hopefully her, her son responds um, a little bit, or positively at least in terms of gear choices. It sounds like he was willing to get trained and take classes and stuff. So 
And his like dad bought him a, a rye helmet and some nice gloves, so he's got a good start. Nice, a rye. Way to go. Yeah. So at least he's, you know, starting off with some good gear, really amazing gear, and he just has to finish up. So good luck, Mom. And um, please let me know. I hope he does well and, and give me an update. I'd love to hear back. But I posted that on my blog today, and it also shows up in my Q&A section. So. Nice. We also have some uh, feedback to catch up on a little bit. Okay. Yeah, what do we got? More, more commentary, less um, less crazy. Uh, oh. Let's see. Do-do-do. Lots of referrals from the Cafe Racer podcast. Got to thank oh. uh, Chris and Stephen over there. Um, oh, that sounds... Alex, just found your podcast. Enjoying it. Two things. You may have answers for these. If so, um, ignore. First, you mentioned not liking armored jeans, the ugly knee. <laughs> not necessarily not liking armored jeans, but um, there are some sketchy uh, pair of jeans that I've already looked at and tried. Have you tried bone armored tights? And uh, I love mine. They work under everything. Super comfy. And second, gas pump woes uh, are something that I suffer from. Found a guy in a forum who makes a little plastic holder. You can press the hose, slip it on, and it holds it. Cannot find the post, but I do have his contact information if you're interested. No, I have a workaround. I just put it in backwards. Or actually, I think it's Chris, and he was referring the guy named Alex who does the the pump thing. But either way, awesome. And then he also uh, later on commented uh, that we should consider having um, his words kick-ass roots section on our site or linking to some. Uh, he might be uh, coming down to Southern California and would love to have some referrals on Don't Miss Roads. So, uh, anyway, yeah, okay, you know, we do ride reports. Maybe we should think about that at some point in the future when we've got some spare time to start sourcing out uh, websites that recommend locations obviously we've talked about moto sfo in in northern california but uh i'm not so sure off the top of my head i know of places you know the one-stop shop network that talks about Um, roads in southern california passionate is my recommendation for california and do they cover southwest i think it covers all of california oh cool i thought you Um, can tell i haven't wandered on there in a while but for cali passionate p-a-s-h-n-i-t that is the the only i think the best place to go for ride routes because he rides every road any twisty road he's ridden it and he's he always takes amazing photos he does tours um tim is um he he loves what he does and it's an amazing resource it's only like 20 dollars a year to subscribe to like dozens hundreds of ride routes it's worth every penny to pay him that um, around the rest of the country, like, I found a couple of random websites that had ride routes because I was looking for PA roads, but I didn't see anything on the scale of passionate. Like, I just didn't see anything that comprehensive. I wish he would. He should do one. Um, but there's, yeah, there's Butler Maps, there's Mac Maps, there's, like, America's Best Roads.com, I think, like that yeah. has, right, you know, there's yeah. the app, so Greatest Road. We should probably come up with a post at some point where we sure. recommend all of what you just said, which I will go back and re-listen to this podcast and tabulate, um, just so we can have something uh, in our uh, yeah. notes somewhere. So if you go to the website, you can just type in um, Kick-Ass Roots, and then that list that Joanne just uh, rattled off will be on it. Um, and then just another quick uh, um, 
referral from someone who was following Anna, our uh, our last uh, podcast while I was gone, which was the interview series. Um, loved loved a couple articles. Sorry, I just was reading this one guy's feedback. <laughs> Um, love, love the couple articles. Keep up the good work. It's nice to see uh, women writing and seeking adventure. Thank you for your feedbacks. It's so nice to read. It's so nice to hear people are listening. Yeah, we love fan mail. <laughs> fan mail's great. And I will definitely try to make the next ep- make sure that audio is turned up louder on the next episodes. Because I also listen on my Cena too. However, one thing about wind noise, um, it's, oh God, it's so subjective. Wind noise on one person's bike, like this guy on his Triumph Trophy, is so different from, you know, me on my bike without any kind of windscreen at all. Um, yeah. It's really hard to say why your helmet's noisy or, you know, why you can't hear the podcast or whatever. Yeah, but exactly. I also don't want to distort the audio either. Um, and when I listen back to it and I turn my headphones way up my ears hurt I can't turn them all the way up because it's so freaking loud so I, I don't know if you're wearing earplugs or not If you're not, it's a very subjective issue you, yes it is very subjective um, I actually have a blog post about it on my site if you google or if you look on my blog for helmet wind noise I wrote one in the last six months or so within the last year and it was just kind of general thoughts on um you know, how helmets are louder and if modulars are quieter or louder than full face, that sort of thing. Uh, so if you're struggling with that, check that out. Um, but yes, feedback is always appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, and I do, uh, this is occasionally funny. Today it is. Um, top searches. We have something that tracks when people type into Google how they find us. Mm-hmm, yeah. And so top searches just happen to notice this. Do women ride motorcycles? Question mark. No. Women motorcycle riders, girl motorcycles. What do guys think of girls who ride motorcycles? Is it okay for a girlfriend to ride on the back of another man's bike? (laughs) Totally retro 1950s question. Yes, I have. And it is okay. And it's also okay to go out riding with another man. (gasps) Yes. Dun, dun, dun. On a ride before with another married man, not my own. What a cheater. We went on two hundred and eighty mile ride a few weekends ago. Yeah. yeah, it was great. I don't. It was so much fun. I showed him a road he's never been on. You know, whatever. It's fun. Totally fun. And I felt a little weird too. But like, why feel weird about it? We're friends. Evan doesn't care. His wife doesn't give a shit. We're just going riding. Whatever. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, I think that's. I'm trying to remember the last time I went riding. Just with another man, um, a man friend, without anyone else, and I, I can't remember. I don't know that I ever have. I'm trying to think, like I've certainly maybe driven across town or something, or like, gone, to dinner to meet friends or something like that. But like a long few hundred mile day ride, I'm always with friends or groups or with Evan. So I think that might have been. I been my first time. Scandalous. Well, I don't know. I think some people might. Some people might find that scandalous. Um, well, clearly they're typing it into Google and finding us. <laughs> you know, those have to be. They have to be guys who are thinking about buying bikes, or getting into motorcycling, and just wondering like what. Or getting into dating chicks that like to sit on the back of other people's motorcycles. 
Yeah, or or they're trying to get into the dating scene and they're trying to see like what is this girl gonna think uh, <laughs> about me riding a bike or That's something. Funny. It's the only thing I can possibly think of. Yeah, so I, I know that I didn't get into a great amount of detail as far as um as far as the trip and things will evolve and actually next next week on fifty three we'll talk a little bit more about all the the lovely products that I was fortunate enough to have on my trip, but I will drop just a quick uh, thank you to uh, the people and then we'll go into better detail next week um, Built to Ride is the is the company that I went and did the uh, Northern India, Nepal and uh, Bhutan trip on and he will actually be offering that in 2015 so you will hear me talk a lot about that in the future um, and uh, a big thanks to Michael at uh, Kriga for providing me with the uh, luggage, which I took the uh, 30, and a 30, a 20, and a 10. Mm-hmm. And then I also had the R30 backpack for my camera gear. So we will be talking about that, and I will have formal reviews for that product uh, coming up. And then as well as uh, Dainese, thanks go out to Chris for hooking me up with... Uh, with a Gore-Tex jacket and the Evo pant, which had the liner. So, yeah, exactly. Um, So uh, a big thanks to them, keeping me nice and dry during the monsoons. So that was uh, hugely helpful on that trip. And, uh, you know, didn't didn't get a whole lot of support from Moto Nation, but God, I love those CD boots. Wow. You know, uh... Can't can't tell enough that CD made such an amazing product, and not even for women. And the damn thing fits, and that's what's amazing because I have a narrow foot, mm-hmm. um, and I was able to make those boots work in such a, a crazy way. And I noticed Fuzzy Glore loves hers too, but uh, it was the CD Adventure Gore-Tex, and uh, that boot. I think they go down to a 39. I think I wear a 40 in it actually. Yeah. Because I have one I foot that's slight. Yeah, one foot that's slightly longer than the other, and so I uh, bumped it up to a 40, and I have a gel insole on the side of it, uh, on inside. But um, that is a, a great boot. Nine will be like your eight and a half. Yeah, eight, and eight, and eight, I ended up being nine. a little bit closer to a nine. So. So if you're below an eight and a half, you're stuck. Yeah, but the only caveat. For them not selling more motorcycles, and I have to, to roll in a minute here, is that, or more motorcycle boots, is that they don't stock down to a 39. And it's going to be very difficult for you to convince a retailer to grab a couple of like 39s and 40s to try. So that would be my only thing. It's a great boot, but you got to be willing to like do lots of shipping and, and whatnot in order to make it work for you. So with that, I will say. Thank you guys very much for holding out for us and uh, and look forward to seeing us back on a regular basis now. And we'll see you, definitely see you back next week for 52. Um, as always... 53. Uh, 53, excuse me. <laughs> um, as always, you can find us at motorific.com and on Facebook at facebook.com slash motorificpodcast. Thanks for listening. Bye.